If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base, a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. Everything is personal right here. Everything is personal right here Everything is personal right here Let me end on the N.A. Heat guaranteed when you press in the play Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. We have an incredible guest uh, for you, Mr. Jesse Cater, who is this SVP, or that stands for Senior Vice President, I'm assuming, of R&D Innovation and R&D at CureLeaf. Uh, thanks a lot for joining. L- let me try to figure out what is innovation and R&D? What does that really mean? Yeah, good question. Um, you know, it, it, it's, um, well, we're... Fortunate to be in a position at CureLeaf where uh, we're dedicating a, a direct resource to supporting cannabis research, product development, and innovation. So uh, it encompasses a lot of things, incorporating, including building a facility and bringing a facility and staff online whose primary focus is cannabis research, product development, and supporting so- some of our external research collaborations. Mm-hmm. Um, it goes beyond that. We're involved with uh, product commercialization, bringing new product to market, uh, constant system of product improvement. So really trying to uh, be at the forefront of cannabis science and product innovation in the cannabis industry. Got it. So for our audience who don't know, and I'm sure there's very few that don't, who is CureLeaf? Yeah, so CureLeaf uh, is... Uh, a, a large uh, multi-state operator within cannabis. Um, we currently operate, I believe, in 23 states, although that, that number is always moving because they're, they're a pretty aggressive growth plan at CureLeaf, uh, as well as uh, several European countries now with CureLeaf International. Um, we are vertical in most of those markets, meaning, and not all, but most markets, we cultivate uh, manufacture products and have both retail and wholesale distribution. Got it. Okay, that's helpful. Um, so where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, a little town in southern New Hampshire called Salem, uh, just about 40 minutes north of Boston. Yeah, I'm familiar. I'm, I'm an East Coast guy. I'm from Philly. Uh, so, I, I, yeah, well, you know, it's okay. I live in L.A., but, you know, Philly, that's why I get out of Philly for the, the weather is just awful. Very similar to Boston weather too, but I, I did do some uh, some work in uh, Harvard and MIT, so I spent time in the Boston area. So I drove up to Salem before, so I'm pretty familiar with it. Um, you, have, you have brothers, sisters? Yeah, I have a brother and a sister. Um, both still located on the East Coast, although kind of scattered now. Like a lot of modern families, we've kind of moved all over. Right. I myself went out to California for about 12 years, uh, really involved in the early days of the Prop 215 market out there, and. Uh, and then came back to the East Coast uh, for this job at CureLeaf about four years ago. So tell me a little bit about that, because I think we have some parallels. I, I sort of did the same thing. I moved from uh, Philly to L.A. about 12 years ago, and I was involved in, uh, we had five dispensaries during the Prop 215 era. So tell me your experiences, then maybe we can compare some notes. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I'm a... Uh, a lifelong cannabis enthusiast, I'll say that. Um, I started at a fairly young age, a really young age. Um, 
you know, and, and have a consistent history with cannabis. I've always uh, benefited from the plant um, product as well as uh, the therapeutic benefits of helping with anxiety and, and uh, pain from time to time. Mm. And so, um, you know, I went to college for uh, chem E and toxicology and um, I went to Northeastern where they have these great internship programs and was doing all these different internships and, and pharma and uh, some of the uh, medical universities and engineering companies. And I, I remember thinking to myself, uh, wouldn't it be incredible if I could apply my education to something I'm really passionate about, like cannabis? At the time in Boston, I like to joke, um, you know, you could drive down the freeway backwards uh, with an open bottle of booze and the cops would laugh at you and tell you to be on your way. But if you had a joint, you were in big time trouble. So right. it was just not a pro-cannabis time uh, in, in Boston. And so um, I graduated. I started working in pharmaceuticals, um, was doing work in toxicology at the time. It was, it was some interesting work. It just wasn't the environment for me. Um, so I moved out to California. I took a, a job at a defense contractor really interesting projects, uh, biofuel projects, just a diverse array of projects with a bunch of diverse scientists and was learning a ton. And I did that for six years. And, and during that time course, um, you know, medical cannabis was coming online in California and the climate was totally different from Boston. People were growing. Some of them weren't even, didn't even shut the garage door. There just, there was no anxiety <laughs> around it. Like there was completely unfamiliar coming out of the East coast. There was so much anxiety around the cannabis scene. And uh, it was so relaxed. This is in San Diego at the time and um, started getting passively involved. Um, had uh, a lab, uh, an offsite lab. I was doing a lot of testing for biofuels with a lot of uh, high resolution uh, analytical chemistry tools. And, uh, uh, a lot of interesting products and cannabis were coming on the scenes and there was very little testing being done. So I started coming in at night and using the instrumentation to provide testing just to a lot of the local players in the industry and provide some feedback. And, um, and then when you, when you say testing, do you mean like for potency or, or pesticide? Like what type of testing? Yeah, I was looking for, um, I was, I was looking at potency, uh, but I was also doing, kind of a non-standardized search for any pesticides that may pop up, meaning there was no established list at the time, but I would look to see if there was pesticides. And and at the time, uh, butane honey oil, as it was called in the early days, had first made its way onto the scene. And so some of my friends were looking at it and people were like, hey, what do you think? Should we get involved in this? So I was, I was looking at that for different residual solvents and things like that, which was really ugly in the early days of, of butane honey oil, seeing all types of nasty stuff. And so... Um, yeah, just, um, just like you said, it was nothing official, no formal business, just really providing a lot of support to the local industry and, and, uh, you know, applying my skill set as, uh, as a chemist to, uh, the cannabis industry and, and did that for a number of years and moved on from defense. And I joined a company called Waters who manufactures a whole range of analytical testing equipment along uh, at the time, a line of CO2 extraction technology. And this was like people were really just starting to uh, first explore the use of CO2 extraction uh, for cannabinoids. And so we typically had sold the equipment for Chinese medicinal herbs and traditional, you know, traditional health and wellness categories. And, you know, my, my boss, uh, I, so I was basically doing business development and technical sales in the Western U.S. And my boss was pretty open minded and say, hey, if you think there's an opportunity, run with it. And uh Within six months, I turned it into a pretty massive business. And uh, so they gave me the category, and uh, I probably put a couple hundred systems into the Western US and Canada, just as Health Canada came online. And um, it wasn't just about putting the technology in. In the early days, as you're probably familiar, there weren't very many chemists or engineers working in cannabis, right? Um, so I would come in, I would help people with extraction, but they wanted help with refinement and formulations and consumer safety testing. Um, and so I, I spun up what was really one of the first contract R&D labs in and uh, we did license application work. So we, we uh, assisted in getting licenses awarded uh, from Florida all the way to Washington across the country. 
Uh, we did a lot of product development and, um, and supported a lot of testing labs coming online, um, did a lot of exploratory formulations work and initial IP development. So had a lot of fun for a few years. And, um, and then, um, of course, adult use uh, passed in California, and that changed everything. We weren't zoned. We were really zoned where we were in Berkeley as a testing lab and not as uh, manufacturing and product, which is really my passion. So um, I decided that uh, we the, the business stayed and got transitioned to a, a third-party testing lab, and I moved on to join Kiraleaf, uh, like I said, about four years ago. So that was C3, right? C3 Labs in Berkeley. Labs yep. in Berkeley, got it. And so, man, it, it's such an interesting, <clears throat> I, I'm just blown away by this kind of story because, you know, I've been, I've been doing this for 26 years coming from Philly. So I know exactly what you mean. I joined so many of my friends were arrested. I had some run-ins, all that stuff. Then you're working in California under Prop 215 for 20 then it goes legal. Then you're sort of, you know, you're a rogue player. You're, you're, you're in with the growers or in the Emerald Triangle, like all that stuff. And then you move into Cureleaf and it's a corporation and it's a, you know, and it's just an interesting transition. Uh, how do, how do you make that transition? How do you feel like based on, you know, being in this industry and I pinch myself every day. I'm like, I cannot believe I'm in cannabis. I'm not plant touching, but it's the same same kind of thing. Like I wanted to kind of get your mindset around that. Yeah, it was it was an interesting and it was a it was a good transition for me. I think um, when I joined Cureleaf, um, they were way smaller than they are now. I mean, this was four years ago. Um, we were in just a, a small handful of states, um, and so uh, you know, I I think there were two hundred to between two and three hundred employees when I joined. Now there's like 6,000. So the growth has been uh, incredible. Um, and uh, it was very different mentality. So I was used to California, uh, although I worked with people throughout the West, but, you know, Colorado and, and, and Washington, a lot of these West Coast states, uh, a lot of historical cannabis industry there. Uh, a lot of that industry was transitioning into the legal market. Um Prop 215 was really like gray area market where you gather a bunch of medical cards and you go to business and you have some recourse to protect yourself if anything goes awry. So I was used to working with guys with a lot of historical knowledge, historical perspective, um, trying to figure out how to move into the regulated market. But that was a slow process. And then you come to the East Coast where um, these markets were smaller. They were highly restricted medical markets, limited limited conditions, limited access, highly regulated. Um, but the trends were there, right? I mean, the writing was on the wall. Some of the markets were starting to open up. They were mm-hmm. going to follow the West Coast, which sets the trend and, and become open, eventually competitive markets, which I, I predicted early on and we're seeing today as really, <laughs> if you look at Massachusetts, where I'm a little the array of products and brands competing feels like a West Coast state, uh, or at least it's getting there. And so, but in the early days, small restrictive. So I I think I brought not only that historical cannabis passion and culture and some of the competitiveness that was happening out West and making the best products uh, to the table to, to really kind of leapfrog Cureleaf into that way of thinking. But at the same time, I had to go and get my PhD education basically on on state by state regulations. I was used to, uh, like I said, a lot of these West Coast markets and the regulations were were changing and, and obviously becoming more uh, more thorough. But uh, going to the East Coast, having to work with all these very different state regulations was was the big learning curve for me. You came in to sort of correct me if I'm wrong to oversee manufacturing at Cureleaf, right? Was that was that your role? Originally, yeah. So, well, I, I was actually hired to do what I'm doing now, uh, but that oh. lasted about three weeks. And the reality was, was they were growing so fast, and I was thinking about product innovation. There was so many holes to fill. Obviously, coming out of the West Coast, all this competitive, great product development taking place, and getting ready to apply all that to Cureleaf and and build a platform. And but our manufacturing sites were just not ready for it. I mean, they were expanding. They were in new states. There wasn't any. SOPs or st- even standardized equipment or practices. So, um, you know, recognizing that and vocalizing that early on, the CEO, Joe Lusardi at the time, asked me to step into that manufacturing role. Mm. 
So I spent three years um, building standard operating procedures and standardizing our, our equipment and the way we do things and hiring and bringing great talent into the space and building out labs and really building the infrastructure that we could commercialize product into. And so I had a lot of success with that. Um, and the company was growing after three years. And so they brought in really a team now of operation leadership to, to build on that. And they felt like it was in a pretty good standardized place and asked me, uh, it gave me the opportunity, frankly, to do what my heart content is really product development to step over and start a product innovation, product development department. Yeah, I, I love that. And you basically answered my next question. I was going to ask you because of scalability, you guys are scaling, right? It's growing so rapidly. How do you still maintain consistency and quality as you scale? Because there are MSOs, uh, not to bring anybody else into this conversation, but I've had conversations with, and I was like, wait a second, you're doing what in this state, but you're doing this in this state? How are you not, it's going to have different products, different consistency, all that stuff. So maintain that SOPs are definitely part of that, but are there any other ways that you're looking at at consistency and quality? Yeah, that's a great question, and and I don't have all the answers. All I know it is it is a major challenge and a major effort. It's important to Kiralif and to myself to have consistent products, uh, consistent experiences, um, to standardize the way we do things, uh, both from a efficiency perspective and for. Um, you know, training and consistency and um, and all that good stuff. And so, um, but it's challenging. The challenging part is that um, we're state regulated, obviously. And uh, those regulations, it's still to this day, after all the years being in this industry, it still shocks me to see how different the state regulations are, how fast they change. Um, to think that states think that differently about cannabis that I mean, regulations in some aspects are polar opposites. And so, you know, we're rolling out new products or trying to revamp existing products and, um, you know, uh, having to go through 20 plus state regulations and figure out how we have to tweak everything to meet those regulations is a constant challenge. So we have a big compliance team, a big quality team, each each one with state by state presence. Um, you know, routine meetings, a commercialization department. And so it's, it's, a, it's a constant ongoing effort, but there is some low hanging fruit, right? Every, every state needs to grow cannabis. Every state needs to extract it and process it, formulate it. And so, yes, there may be some tweaks or changes based on regulations, but uh, developing procedures and batch records and um, yeah. holding team meetings and trainings and having field facing functions uh, are all critical to trying to get that right. But it is, it is, a massive lift. And I, I, I'm a little bit anxious about what eventual federal regulation will actually mean. I, I've guessed it. I've get, been guessing at it for four years, um, like a lot of other people. I think we all have our perspective, but we, we really won't know for sure until it happens. But I, I do hope it will at least mean a streamlined set of, of regulations to follow. Well, all right. So nobody's listening to this anyway. It doesn't really matter. Give me a predict. What do you think? Let, let's compare notes. I'll tell you what I think, and you tell me what you think is going to happen on the federal side. Sure. I, I think that, um, well, I think the first thing is that right now, the way that we do consumer, that consumer safety is handled with third-party testing labs doesn't make any sense at all to me. And I, I don't think if you look at the way that the FDA treats the pharmaceutical industry, it's more from an audit perspective and holding people accountable to a set of regulations. And most pharmaceutical companies don't make mistakes with that because there's just too much to lose. Right now, the reality is, and, and having a lot of experience with third-party testing labs and having supported a, a lot directly, I mean, their client are ultimately is the same person that or companies that they're trying to provide consumer safety against. And so that's that really doesn't line up, right? And so, you know, we know for an easy example is potency, while important for the consumer and how much they're taking, is also a major marketing and sales tool, right? If your, if your flower, if your cannabis flower is 30% and mine's 20%, uh, guess whose flower the consumer's buying if it's available, right? I mean, Well, yeah, and, and especially in certain states, and you hit the nail on the head, look, look, look at Canada. You can't market your products. You go in there and people are buying, oh, this is 30% THC. I'm going to buy this instead of the 24% THC. You're right. Right. Exactly. That's exactly right. And so, 
uh, a lot of businesses uh, have a practice of shopping labs. They know how important that number is to driving sales. And, you know, if you're a third-party testing lab and you're trying to maintain business, I'm not suggesting people are doing anything, you know, wrong or, or illegal, but they're, you know, you're, you're, you're setting up your assay to hopefully retain that business. Let me just put it that way. It's, whereas if Curly, for example, was held accountable like our peers to a set of regulations and had to self-test and the FDA was going to be pulling product off the shelf and then testing that and there were severe penalty if we were mislabeling, you better believe we're going to be really accurate with everything we do, right? And so I think, uh, I think that's certainly something that would change. Uh, I believe that uh, interstate commerce will become an option at one point. Um, the fact that neighboring states with similar adult use or medical regulations, uh, uh, although you see limited reciprocity around a license acceptance, you can't move product across state line. You know, that doesn't really apply in any other industry. It's ridiculous. It would be nice to be able to centralize cultivation places where cultivation makes sense. You know, it might not make a ton of sense to, to grow in the freezing cold of my backyard here in Boston. It might make right. sense to grow in the Central Valley of California, where the weather's perfect and they have a long uh, history in agriculture of growing that crop. And and not to have to, you know, we, we introduced a, a great line of gummy products a year ago that's evolved, but most solutions that you look at um, are too big. And people say too big. Well, we have to do this 20 plus times. So you can't just bring one gummy manufacturing plant online and really monitor every aspect and perfect it. You have to replicate that process 20 plus times. And so I think that will hopefully change as well. Um, do you see Do you see a correlation between like alcohol and how it's being treated on a federal level where you have certain states that have like uh, Pennsylvania state liquor stores. You can't buy your alcohol in the uh, 7-Eleven. But there are sort of interstate commerce and interstate groups between like tri-state areas of things of that nature. Do you see something like that? Yeah, I, I certainly think that's a high likelihood for a distribution model. Obviously, you see a lot of big alcohol distributors starting to engage, at least in the CBD and hemp side of the business. And so they're smart. They know what they're doing. They see the opportunity. Um, and so uh, that's, that's certainly uh, something I think that will happen. And I think um, I also, although this is probably the most area for debate, I think the FDA will require a higher burden to prove safety of the products. I think, um, you know, there's different opinions on what form that takes place, uh, whether you can get these products labeled as grass or, or new dietary ingredients and the type of, of literature that and, and safety information that has to go along with that. Um, certainly a big area for debate, but I think in some way, shape, or form, the FDA will require a higher burden of proof of safety of products. Do you think that the FDA is likely to look at cannabis? Like we have this recreational and medical. Do you think they're going to continue to make this distinction at the FDA level? Because they don't look at it that way now. No, I, I don't think so at all. I think that I think there will be a medical market, but I think it will be. Uh, I think the, that it's going to be just like epidiolics. It's going to be FDA approved clinical studies that yield an FDA approval of a drug. So mm -hmm. I, I think that uh, for promising therapeutic areas, uh, especially some of these more narrow disease states, I think that uh, where cannabis shows a lot of promise, there will be companies looking to pursue uh, a pharmaceutical path to get FDA approval, to be able to make specific claims about the product and have it prescribed and covered by insurance. But I think really today, I think you get a blend of adult use and then medical markets. And what, what are the medical markets today? Well, it's a lot of people finding a qualifying condition they, they can get under so they can access cannabis or be a lot of people with those qualifying conditions, whether it's insomnia or anxiety or general pain, but therapeutic and wellness categories that I think will all be handled under just the broad adult use you know, look, some people use alcohol, drink alcohol to help them sleep at night to cope with anxiety, but that doesn't mean they're prescribed drugs. They're, they're handled the same. And so I see a future where there'll be a broad category, probably distributed and handled somewhat similar to alcohol, but unique. I believe there are absolutely true pharmaceutical applications for naturally derived cannabinoids. And I, I think there are companies that have already started to that will continue to pursue those opportunities. But 
I think that will be very different from how we define medical today. Right. So more of like, uh, would you think that it would be sort of a, a supplementation? Like you're going to your GNC and you're getting your cannabinoid supplement to address that symptomatic condition, not medical, but you have to be an adult 21 and over and you get your supplementation, like maybe even a medical food product that the FDA says, yes, it's a medical food product. It's approved for that. You have some studies for those symptomatic conditions, but it's not a pharmaceutical treat a disease per se. Yeah, I do. I mean, cannabis is interesting in this regard, and this is where it veers from alcohol. It's absolutely a great adult use alternative to alcohol. I mean, um, the, you know, obviously the, from an organ systems toxicology perspective, from a societal toxicology perspective, cannabis is just a far safer choice. Mm. Um, and so I think it is a great adult use market opportunity for cannabis. Um, but at the same time, un- unlike alcohol, there is a lot of therapeutic potential in cannabis uh, from broad categories, just like improvement of sleep and dealing with um, aches and pains and and then even to more severe disease states, when I look at the range of clinical studies now starting to take place, um, everything from Alzheimer's to diabetes, and uh, obviously a lot of the epilepsy-related conditions, quality of life in, in cancer patients. I mean, uh, cancer has, I mean, cannabis has the potential to really be an effective therapeutic in a lot of these areas, especially as the science evolves. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity. I, I do think for some of these very specific disease states like epilepsy, um, like potentially, um, you know, type two diabetes and, and other conditions like that, I think there will be a, a prescription route. Um, but I also think that you're right as, as scientific evidence mounts and safety evidence mounts, um, there will be a eventual path to get these products uh, approved for as di- for dietary supplement use as well. So What's Cureleaf's mission? Uh, Cureleaf's mis- mis- mission is, is pretty straightforward. They want to make cannabis safe and effective cannabis available to as many people as possible. They want to really um, make it, um, you know, demystify it, remove the stigma and make it available to as many people as possible. And, uh, I like that because you think about even like five, six years ago, how much stigma there is around cannabis in certain communities. And then you look at today and I don't know about you, but I see it in my own network of people, not necessarily the people I work with because they're pretty proactive, but family and friends, more traditional folks that historically, you know, wasn't something they would consider. And now they're, they've gone as far now as trying the product and asking a lot of questions and they're intrigued about how it might help them. So you've seen it become more accessible and, and the stigma, you know, be reduced and, and people really start to benefit from it. People who are typically taking pharmaceutical products that may have severe side effects or or uh, have you know propensity for addiction, and cannabis is a nice natural alternative for a lot of those folks. Yeah, hundred percent. I see the same thing in my network and people that have <clears throat> you know used to call me many years ago. Uh, it's the stoner. It's the now they're coming. Oh, I can't sleep or I have aches. Can you tell me what cannabis? So yeah, it definitely, definitely opened that 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 dialogue up. But so this Cure Leafs mission, does it align? I'm assuming it aligns with your personal mission and what you want to achieve in the in the space as well. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I'm uh you know, I'm 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 living my dream right now. I mean, like I said, <laughs> I remember being in college and turning at these different companies thinking and and honestly thinking, wouldn't it be incredible to be able to apply my education, my passion for science and engineering to cannabis? At the time, uh, I remember I remember debating probably over a joint with a few friends if it would ever happen in our lifetime, <laughs> you know, and there was some, some, yeah, 30, 40 years from now and others saying probably not. And so now to be in a place where I'm applying my educational background, my, my, my really two great passions, my passion for science and engineering and my passion for cannabis together. And so, uh, you know, my mission is the interesting thing is, uh, you know, I, you hear a statement sometimes and it sometimes it's confusing for folks because they think we know a lot about cannabis because it's been around for so long. And in some aspects we do, but you hear the statement, we're at the tip of the sphere or the tip of the iceberg when it comes to our, our understanding and knowledge on cannabis. And, you know, the further I get into it with this R&D department exploring the pharmacology, the biochemistry, 
formulation technologies and all this stuff, the more I realize every time you answer a question, 10 more questions pop up. Right. And so the more you realize how much work there is to do, how much we really don't know, how much potential there is. Um, and so, you know, my mission is really to combine, to bring great science and engineering to cannabis, to make it more accessible, to treat more therapeutic areas and to validate that science. So yeah. I mean, one thing that you're probably aware of is that, you know, one thing that I am concerned about is that cannabis is sometimes positioned inappropriately as a cure-all, especially hemp. And you saw CBD just being sold blankly for everything. And I do think CBD is a highly beneficial component and as I do out of the rest of the cannabinoids, but it's not a cure-all. And I think that um, it's through science that we need to uh, do the preclinical testing and the clinical validation to show where the true efficacy lies and make it more accessible and build people's confidence. And there's there's so many real applications for cannabis. We don't need to, you know, it doesn't need to be positioned as a cure-all. It's, it's a fantastic natural compound that can help a lot of people. And so, again, my mission is to really help further the science on uncovering the real th therapeutic potential of, of cannabinoids and, and cannabis-based compounds. Um, <clears throat> your background in toxicology, uh, how, how do you leverage, or maybe you don't, how do you leverage that experience uh, within CureLeaf? Well, I do all the time. I think, um, you know, toxicology is really an offshoot of pharmacology. So I spent a lot of time studying biochemistry and pharmacology in college and then had a lot of toxicology specific courses. And, uh, you know, toxicology is really uh, goes hand in hand with pharmacology. Pharmacology is understanding how a substance is working to achieve the results that you're looking for. Toxicology is, of course, understanding of toxic compounds, but also uh, undesirable effects from something that you're seeking a positive outcome from. And so, I think that, you know, right now, um, because we're state regulated and these markets are moving so fast, um, the nature of all these different formulations and types of compounds being mixed with cannabis and things that are being blended for inhalation, um, you know, I think uh, anybody responsible in the industry needs to be doing a thorough investigation. You can't just put something in the market. Is this safe? I mean, we saw what happened with uh, VapeGate where people were getting sick. And we know that was mostly connected with illicit products and, and things being added that shouldn't be added. But um, look, this is a competitive industry. People are trying to improve formulations, make things taste better and, um, and work with different hardware. And that's all great stuff. But uh, just like anything um, for mass consumption, um, that toxicology piece, the safety of these products needs to be at the forefront. People, uh, you know, I, I started, like you said, consuming cannabis at a very young age. At the time for me, the only product available was flour. So it was either a really a bowl, a bong, or a joint. Uh, if you were lucky, you could score a little bit of hash. <laughs> but, um, you know, now it's different. There's, there's just such a wide array of products available. And so, um, you know, look, when you're, when you're 18 to 30, you don't always ask yourself if what you're doing is safe. It's our responsibility to make sure that these products are safe so there are no long-term consequences. And yeah. people think about cannabis as a much safer alternative to alcohol, as they should, as a safer alternative to nicotine and smoking cigarettes, as they should, because my my opinion and based on all the data I've seen, it absolutely is in all regards. But I think it's our responsibility to make sure that um, we're, we're being smart and conscious about the safety of the products that we're putting onto the market. Yeah, I, I, it's a great point because <clears throat> when we met my company, we met with the FDA. They asked, what's the purpose of your company or what are you what are you doing or with your test? And we sought to help people avoid an adverse event. And they're like, okay, that sounds good. That's what we want to do. Uh, so in sort of to piggyback on that a little bit, uh, do you, when you're creating products, are you looking at the human side, like cytochrome P450 markers, like metabolic function, because it's not a one size fits all. How are people going to metabolize it or put metabolizers if they, uh, you know, an edible, maybe that's something they want to avoid. Are you involved in that level of, uh, you know, education or getting people to understand that it's not a one size fits all kind of thing? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question and really timely question. We, we are, um, we started with a lot of fundamental questions in that area. We've hired some, uh, some great biochemists in the lab recently who are looking at 
uh, all these different receptor binding assays and downstream signaling assays to really look at how these different cannabinoids are, are interacting and then causing downstream effects and how they interact with each other. How do terpenes uh, and other bioactive compounds interact with that? Um, whether through a synergistic mechanism or inhibitory mechanism. So we're certainly exploring a lot of those things. We're starting to look at doing some real pharmacokinetic work, understanding um, the time to onset, offset, the bioavailability, the type of metabolites that are formed. I think the interesting thing, you're starting to see this with more current formulations on the market, um, you know, uh, some of these products categorized as nano, and that's a whole separate topic. A lot of them aren't nano, and nano means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. I look at it as, you know, drug delivery technology. How are they being formulated to maximize the different effects of time to onset, offset metabolites? And depending on how you take the product and what formulations it in and, and other personal choices, you can have very different experiences, right? Sometimes you get a light social experience with one type of product. Others are more sedative and couch locking, more psychedelic. A lot of this is driven by the type of metabolites and that PK profile. So we're starting to do a lot of that work. And then, well, we're not doing anything active yet. We've had a lot of planning conversations yesterday at looking at that personal piece then, that, that personal genomics piece and talking with some external companies as well as some internal uh, biochemistry expertise at how we further explore that individual piece of, of how we might tailor products to the specific individual for that outcome. You're not talking to us <laughs> and their DNA, but uh, all right, all right we, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it offline. But yeah, it, the na- you hit the nail on the head. I mean, it's one thing to develop products in a silo. It's another thing to be able to consume those products and understand that every individual l- consumes it differently. Method of consumption is important. Your metabolic function, uh, pharmacokinetics, uh, your, your pharmacogenomics. What about drug interaction? Are you taking SSRIs? How is that going to interact? Are you taking a, uh, you know, a blood thinner medication? What about supplements? Certain supplements interact with all these things. It's a, it's a lot of complexities to this thing. And you, you, I'm glad you bring that up because a company like Cureleaf, who's, who's you know, a, a major player in this space looking at this. And I, my, my next follow-up is about research and how you're involved in research. But that's that's a huge, huge part of the business and the industry that I think, you know, you and I were in the Prop 215 space. Nobody thought about it. But, you know, from my perspective, I always wondered, I'm like, why are two people that are consuming exactly the same cultivar, why are they experiencing this differently? And I'm like, well, it's got to be that this Alaskan thunderfuck strain that they're consuming is one of them is bullshit, one of them is actually, uh, or is it themselves? And this was sort of this mission that I try to figure out. So I'm glad you're really bringing that up. And so I'll kind of ask my question, is Cureleaf involved in actual research, whether it's clinical, whether it's observational? And if so, like, what, what can you discuss or what can you talk about? Yeah, so we're we're directly involved with a lot of preclinical assays. Um, for those who don't know, preclinical or in vitro chemistry or or petri dish science, but there's a lot of great results and things you can discover that way, um, as well as 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 a lot of the, the pharmacokinetics testing. Um, we are doing. We also do and support directly a lot of observational studies. So these are studies that are less formal than. Um, you know, a true clinical study where, you know, an, an IRB approves a protocol and, you know, they have uh, a lot of controls associated with them, but they're still insightful studies where products going out, it can still include a placebo group. And you're getting real clarity to answering questions like, does CBN help with sleep? Um, you know, a well-designed observational study uh, can still be publishable and can still provide great insight there. Uh, but we do take it a step beyond. We're partnered with a few universities. I, I'm not sure if I can disclose them because that's you know the relationship with those universities. But uh, we we are actively funding uh, a couple universities to do uh, actual clinical studies. Well-known universities um, that uh, publish all the time, and so uh, they're doing uh, IRB-approved clinical studies sponsored by us that we help shape, yeah. and they bring a lot of that clinical expertise to the table. We bring a lot of product expertise, ensuring that uh, the questions we're answering are relevant. Um, you know, I there's been a lot of studies on epilepsy, great area. Um, 
I think it's been a highly publicized area and, and frankly, uh, an area of therapeutic benefit that's helped open the door for where we are today based on a lot of the PR and, and early campaigning that took place. But, you know, why do people come to dispensaries for therapeutic benefit today? Um, pain, sleep, and anxiety. Uh, you know, we have, you know, 100 plus retail locations around the country. They come in for a lot of reasons, but if it's therapeutic, more often than not, it's one of those three areas. Yeah. Yet there's really a, a, a very limited amount of, of even preclinical data, but certainly clinical data to address those three big areas. And so, uh, I think we're trying to really uh, address some of those uh, concerns as well. Yeah, and I completely agree with you, Jesse, on, on the observational side. Look, <clears throat> you can do in vivo, uh, in vitro type of studies in a Petri dish or, or in an animal model, but having hundreds or thousands of people that report an outcome, I mean, you're dealing with humans. Yes, you don't have controls. Yes, it's some of placebo, but guess what? There's a lot of placebo with pharmaceutical outcomes as well. And if somebody feels better and there's a consistency of reporting they feel better, then what better trial do you need? And we're limited, obviously, to do clinical, real clinical trials in the in the US anyway. So I I really agree and commend you for for looking at those things. And I'll give you sort of an example. Uh, we just published a study with Credo Science with Dr. Ethan Russo on cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. So for those people that don't know, it's a condition where people get abdominal pain and uh, vomiting related to cannabis use. Um, you can go to PubMed and read it. If, if, you, if you put in Ethan Russo's name, you'll probably get like a hundred different publications. So if you put a Len May, you get one. So it's probably easier to find it if you search me. But there's a correlation that we found in the cohort based on genetic predispositions. So it's sort of the perfect storm kind of thing, right? So looking at this thing, and and there's a stigma associated. So, oh my God, you know, uh, it can make, cannabis can make you do X, Y, and Z. But not really because it's specific to a certain type of group and a certain type of outcome and a certain type of cannabis. So it it is really a personalized experience. But by you getting the data over and over from these observational studies, you can start creating some correlations. And especially with method of consumption too. Look, man, if if you're a poor metabolizer of THC and uh, you know, and you have predisposition to psychosis, let's say, I'm just, and you're going to be popping gummies or, or edibles, guess what? You may be in for a pretty rough experience. Now, you're not going to die most likely. Nobody has ever died. But is it a psychotic episode may not be very comfortable for an individual. So doing these things and being able, and you guys have the bandwidth to do it on a large scale, to get that feedback and to be able. So observational is definitely a great uh, place to go. I, Agree yeah, with you. yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, like I said, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, we we want to guide people based on real scientific evidence. We want to feel yeah. build some confidence that you know there's there's data that supports why we're recommending this for you and why you're coming in and uh, giving up that prescription medication, hopefully to take something that's a little bit more natural, easier on your system, and 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 far less addictive. <laughs> yeah, a hundred percent. Just to kind of switch to business, uh, for, you guys have also grown through acquisition, uh, correct? What's what are the uh, what's a good acquisition? Uh, like, what determines a, a company as a good acquisition target? Well, I think uh, a couple of things. Uh, is it you know uh, is there a lot of overlap uh, with the existing business, or is it is it more synergistic or additive? Meaning. Uh, a lot of times you might be looking for entry into new markets that you don't currently participate in. Um, and you may be looking at uh, a foray into a new technology uh, or, or skill set that you don't currently have depth in yourself. And you pick up a group that has great depth in something that your company is weak in, but you know you have other things that you bring to the table. So you're looking at you know really a, a synergistic situation where there's mutual benefit uh, you know, cultural fit is is extremely important. I can't say that enough. It's often overlooked in acquisitions. Um, but at the end of the day, um, culture is, is very important in every industry. Uh, I think it's even more so important in cannabis. I mean, people are passionate about cannabis. Uh, you know, it's, it's historical. It was a black market thing for a long time. And people took their chances because they believed in it. And 
they connected over and it helped them. And so the culture. And so I think that um, making sure that there's similar culture, that people are in it for the right reasons. And uh, I, I think that's critical as well. And so, yeah, we, we have had uh, a lot of acquisitions. Not all have been perfect, but a lot of them have been highly synergistic and beneficial. And, uh, you know, you you come together and you break down those barriers and uh, you try to operate as a single company with a single focus. And I think the more of them that happen, the better you get at it. And especially when you have a clear mission and there's a lot of passionate people, it makes it even even easier. Yeah, you, you hit, I, I'm so glad you said that because there is a perception of, you know, big business coming into cannabis and all my friends with the long beards and long hair, they're like they grew for generations and all that stuff. And now you have the cure leaves and the other big players coming on and what's going to happen to these people. And I'm so glad that you brought up that connection to the plant and the culture because there there is that foundation. Companies that are growing through acquisition and that's sort of looking at what can I do to get my stock up? You know, that's that's my mission. And they lose that connection. And I think we can see some of those companies having some difficulties because there is that, you know, you have you bought all these companies, you acquired them, but you don't have that glue that binds them together, which is, you know, the passion for the plant. Absolutely makes total sense. I, li- I like to say a lot, um, you know, so we're, we're here in the Boston area and, of course, uh, local uh, brewery, very popular in the country, Sam Adams, Boston Beer Company. Yeah. Um, great reputation, uh, not only in New England, but across the country. Uh, not that different from, you know, Sierra Nevada. But I like to say you wouldn't you would you wouldn't go into uh, a senior level meeting and, and say, hey, let's let's drink Boston beer. Let's have a great Sam Adams or a truly after the meeting and, and have people snub their nose and say that's not for me. You'd have a lot of enthusiasm. When's the latest product coming? Can't wait to try it. And so part of what I do in R&D and, and part of what I'm proud to be part of Cureleaf is a culture, a culture of passion for the product that we're delivering. I certainly have it. Um, yeah. um, and, uh, and, and most of the people I work with and that I hire have it. And they're, they're professionals first and they're, they're, they're dedicated to their craft, but they're, they're equally passionate about uh, the product, cannabis, the people they're helping. And I think that's, that's really what it's all about at the end of the day is, is authenticity and, and, and making it accessible to more people. Yeah, I absolutely agreed. And in your passion comes through, so that's it's clear in the way you're you're talking about it as well. Um, innovation. So what it what are some innovations that you're working that you can discuss? What's uh, what are the you know? Is it, I, I think I read there's beverage uh, and beverage enhancers. But what are you excited about? Yeah, so much. I mean, we we have a lot in the hopper, um, but a couple key key projects I'm excited about. Um, you know, I've been studying um, drug delivery technology and and and, and, apply, and ways to apply it safely to cannabis for a long time. And um, there's so many technologies. People look at nano and think it's a sing- singular technology, but there are dozens and dozens of technologies, approaches, and it's a science unto itself. And so they all have pros and cons and benefits. So uh, we've done a lot. We've introduced... Uh, nanotechnology in the form of a beverage enhancer and, and nano gummies. Really what that means for people is uh, it's faster onset, but it's the metabolites are different. So it's definitely a lighter, more social experience. When I take nano, I can go to the bar with people who are drinking and talk to them all night and be energetic. Whereas a regular edible for me, I want to be on the couch with the lights out watching the big Lebowski. So uh, very different effect. Um, so we've pushed that. We we launched uh, a liposomal-based product recently called X-Bytes, but it's a really unique approach to a liposomal technology um, with a vastly different um, uh, distribution than a normal liposomal approach. And the feedback we've got through sensory and we're now confirming with PK work is kicks in faster than classic, maybe not as fast as nano, but it has a long duration of action, whereas nano drops off after a couple hours this keeps going and building and it's a very potent milligram per milligram bite. And so that yeah. certainly addresses certain segment of the computer and has uh, of the community has a use occasion. Um, so those just launched, we're going to be launching a foray into the seltzer category, which I'm excited about. I, I've really through early COVID got carried away with alcohol myself, I think yeah. coping and I've curtailed like 
almost entirely my drinking uh, and replaced it with cannabis-based beverages, which are so much better for you. So I'm, I'm excited about that category in general. Um, we're, we've developed an in-house extraction technology. So, I mean, we've been extracting with the same few platforms for a long time now, hydrocarbon-based, either butane or propane, uh, CO2 or ethanol. All of them have their, their pros and their cons. Uh, I've always thought there was a better way. And so we're, we're launching a platform uh, all I can really say is it's it's, it's water-based technology. Uh, really, even though water <clears> is, as chemists know, a solvent, it's really considered a solventless technology, uh, but high throughput, high efficiency, just beautiful uh, whole plant extract, uh, but made in a solventless fashion. So uh, in-house developed technology that's taken a few years uh, that is now uh, getting ready to launch, which we're really excited about. And then, like I said, we're doing a lot of interesting things uh, on the chemistry and biochemistry side. There, there continue to be more cannabinoids found, minor cannabinoids found and identified in cannabis. And so we have a platform for creating those cannabinoids, either synthetically or, or through a biosynthesis process, um, and then testing them uh, through a lot of these assays that we were... Oh. So many other cannabinoids that are exciting that we're exploring. So um, I'm pretty excited about that too. Yeah. Uh, your your connection froze for a second when you were talking about it. I think I, I got the gist of it. Um, a quick story. You were mentioning alcohol. Uh, so in the beginning of COVID, there was, a I think, this woman who went around like in Brentwood and Beverly Hills and other areas, and she would record people's recycling bins and they were filled with empty bottles, man. So <laughs> there was a lot of people that were like, you know what? Uh, the, the world's going to end. We're all going to die. Might as well drink up. So, uh, and then the other thing that you brought up is, uh, you know, how it affects you in couch locks. And all. Have you ever done a, a DNA test? Have you ever done like a 23Me or an Ancestry no, or anything like that? We, I'd love to talk uh, even deeper about that offline at some point. And in Poland, uh, we have a biochemist uh, on my department who's very talented and very passionate about exactly what you're talking about. And he's proposed doing something like that in R&D, uh, 23Me type testing, but focused on cannabinoids. It's something that we'd love to bring some of our expertise to the table, but partner ideally with some external experts that have the, the the deep expertise and bandwidth to really focus on that. That's a really intriguing area. Like you said earlier, uh, the same cannabis product uh, can affect different people very yeah. differently based on a variety of different reasons, but in, in, including genetics. And so yeah. we'd love to understand that more and, and make more tailored, tailored cannabis products. And so uh, we've had some great deep dive conversations on that only over the last couple months and certainly an area we, we want to explore further. Yeah, I wasn't bringing it up as a business conversation. Yeah, uh, thank you for mentioning that. I'd love to talk to you a little bit more. I was mentioning that if you actually personally have taken one, what I was going to do is offer you a way to upload your results to us and, and I'll go over your results with you. So uh, we can still do that offline. Yeah, we can I'd still do to, that. I'd offline. love to connect with you on that. Uh, that's that, Like I said, that's no, it's timely. It's, it's a conversation, mm -hmm. interestingly enough, we've had uh, a lot recently because it's... Uh, it's certainly a great opportunity to make even more effective products. Yeah, cool. All right. So uh, oh, I have a few questions I ask all my guests. Uh, very, very difficult questions to get ready. Uh, like uh, it's like calculus almost. <laughs> um, all right. So please describe your first experience with cannabis. Uh, my first experience with cannabis um, I was in still in late grade school, which uh, is young. Uh, lived in a, a neighborhood with a lot of kids same age, and my neighbor and I uh, bought a joint uh, off a kid in the neighborhood. Uh, he called it uh, Alaskan Thunderfuck. Um, you know, it was twenty five dollars for the. <laughs> you didn't. You didn't bring that up because I said Alaskan Thunderfuck before. That's no, so funny. <laughs> it was. It, it, honestly, that was the first. That was the first product we had That's tried. Hilarious. That and the second one was Purple Haze, which is also a throwback. But uh, yeah, he charged us twenty five dollars for the joint. I'm sure we got ripped off. So we 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 smoked in my buddy's basement and and laughed hysterically for four or five hours <laughs> afterwards. And, and at that point on, it was love at, love at first try, I'll say. <laughs> I love that, man. That's a great experience. Not, not everybody. I mean, I've, I've interviewed so many people that had like a negative first experience and I'm go so glad they 
continue to find that a good experience, but I, I had the same experience as you, a good one for the first time. Uh, Tom, I'm a big music guy. You can see uh, albums and all that stuff behind me. Uh, so do you remember what the first concert you ever attended? Oof, that's a good question. Um, you know, I had another neighbor who got me really into fish early on, if you remember fish. And they were big in the Northeast at the time, uh, doing shows in Burlington, Vermont. Right. One of the first shows I went to where yeah. uh, you would go and camp out for a few days and uh, smoke weed and listen to great music. Uh, so uh, probably a, a number of those fish jam band type concerts uh, in the early days and uh, great experience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, smoking cannabis, doing some mushrooms here and there, uh, some other psychedelics. Uh, were you also just curious if you're fish, are you into the dead as well? I am. I always like their music. I, I, uh, but right around the time I got into the scene, uh, the dead weren't really touring as much and fish was really coming on strong and, and they were doing some great, great like festivals in new England. And so, um, well, I was absolutely a fan, a fan and it was part of the same community. Uh, fish for me, uh, was like the first really deep love uh, for uh, that type of music. What about Mo? Yeah, familiar with Mo, but uh, yeah, I was I was right. just super into fish. I mean, I, I probably it. saw, I went to almost every festival they had for a good three-year stretch, so. <laughs> got it. So do you remember what the first like album or CD or cassette you ever got? Um, I remember I got the Metallica, uh, Metallica album. And then interestingly enough, not long after, uh, the Chronic by Dr. Dre. And my mom found it in my room, threw it in the trash can. It had the pot leaf on it. Oh, no. <laughs> She's like, had the, you know, the parental advisory on it. So my mom, and then I went back to the store and it was a lot of money back then for a kid to buy a CD, but I went back to the store and bought it again um, or, or the tape at the time. But yeah, the, so it was the Metallica Black album, then not long after the Dr. Dre, the Chronic. <laughs> Got it. Um, what has cannabis meant in your life? Uh, you know, for me, uh, part of what has made me successful is also what ails me. And that's, I just have a, a, a never ending mind. I mean, it's hard for me to turn my mind off. I suffer from anxiety. So, you know, uh, there's always so much going on. I have a family, uh, that, uh, young family I'm taking care of, and I'm so passionate about work and there's so much going on. And so I'm always stressing about what's happening at work and thinking about and problem solving and, I have an impossible time turning it off to the point where I won't sleep at night. It will affect my relationships. Cannabis is a magical switch for me and always has been where I can, I can, whether I, I vape or I take an edible, um, I, it's, it, it eases my mind. It allows me to focus on family and relaxation, shut off for a little while and just enjoy myself. And, and it also stimulates a lot of creative thinking. thinking. Interestingly, I'll turn my brain off with cannabis, but then sometimes revisit that that challenge, but in a different perspective and come up with a solution. I'll jot down a few notes because I want to enjoy my time, but I'll revisit the next morning and there's real gold there. So, <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. That's a, that's a great way. I can't wait to do your DNA test. Maybe we can figure out where the anxiety and find you what, what works best for you. That, that'd be really cool. Uh, okay. Final bonus question. Uh, please, uh, please describe what your room looked like growing up. Oh, man. My room was a disaster. Uh, always a mess. Uh, I had uh, typically uh, in my closet under layers of clothes, my stash, uh, you know, with an old shoebox or something like that. Often discovered by my parents and flushed that I would have to go out yeah. and then repurchase, uh, uh, you know, definitely some uh, fish posters on the wall. Uh, went through a phase where I got into lava lamps and things like that, um, you know, and, and that phase didn't last too long. And uh, then was replaced by, you know, Larry Bird posters and uh, <laughs> some basketball memorabilia. <laughs> yeah. So I, I lied. That usually is my last question, but be, because I got a guy from Boston here, I want to ask, this is timely. Uh, what do you, uh, you know, Brady retiring and all this stuff I'm reading today all over social. He's not talking about the Patriots. He's not talking about the Patriots. So what do you just want to get your thoughts and opinion on that? Yeah, or, I mean, uh, look, I'm uh, I'm a Patriots fan. Grew up watching the Patriots with my dad and my grandfather. Um, 
you know, I have nothing but positive feelings for Brady. I mean, he, he did so many great things in New England. Uh, I mean, I remember watching the Patriots when Bledsoe was the starting quarterback and he had so much potential, but I, you know, I used to call him the inter the, the king of interceptions. It was like every other throw you blow it with an interception. Then Brady came in and, you know, just, I think just blew us all away and took us for such a wild ride. And Hey, you know, having, having to work the balance of my own life between work and family, uh, and how much dedication goes into being that great at something, um, I, I completely understand the decision to retire. So, you know, yeah. I wish him good luck with whatever he does. Well said. Cool. Uh, Jesse, where can people find out more about you, Curly, for anything else that you want to share, uh, social or anything that we can uh, we can tag? So, yes, yeah, certainly uh, people can find me directly on LinkedIn, but cureleaf.com and through all our social platforms and Say, hey, we have a question for R&D or for Jesse and R&D. And I love to interact with people. Uh, scientists are just curious minds. So, <laughs> yeah. Love it, man. Listen, I so appreciate you taking the time doing this. I, I love the interaction. And uh, we'll, I'll definitely follow up with you on, on some of that stuff and uh, continue. But thank you so much for your time. Eh? It's great. Appreciate Glenn, it. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. Please follow up with me. We'd love to, to pick your brain a little bit and uh, talk to you about uh, some of the genomics work. Cool. You got it. All right. Thanks, man. man. You too. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Joyce Gerber, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast, The Canna Mom Show. And we are on a mission to enhance the impact women have on this industry as business professionals, healthcare providers, policy advocates, caregivers, moms, by sharing and preserving their stories of love and kindness, wisdom, and hope. I am so grateful to have found my tribe of Canada podcasters right here on PodConX and look forward to our work of crushing the stigma around cannabis and caregivers and building this new industry together.